Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we welcome Josephine Ensign, who joins us to talk about her new book, Skid Road, On the Frontier of Health and Homelessness in an American City, from Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, Josephine, if you would, start us off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. And thanks for having me, Stephen. Um, so I am a public health nurse, which makes it a very interesting time um, to be a public health nurse. And I've been one for about uh, 40 years, mostly working with people marginalized by poverty and homelessness. And my doctorate is in global health and health policy. I'm a professor of nursing at the University of Washington School of Nursing here in Seattle. And I teach health policy, public health, and health humanities. My, my scholarship, again, as well as my practice as a nurse and a nurse practitioner, has focused on health and social inequities, uh, mostly in the United States, but also internationally. And Skid Road is my third book, uh, my second, second book published by an academic press, and it's the culmination of what I kind of tongue-in-cheek call my trilogy of homelessness. It's my first book, um, Catching Homelessness, uh, is a medical me- memoir um, about my work with and then my, my own experience with homelessness as a young adult in my hometown of Richmond, Virginia. And my second book, Soul Stories, um, has to do much more with trauma-informed care and homelessness and has um, a lot to do with gender-based violence. And then this third book um, uh, is really more the history of health and homelessness in my hometown now of, um, of Seattle. So I've been a Seattle resident for close to 30 years and um, have worked um, with homeless youth, but also across the, the lifespan with uh, people experiencing homelessness in Seattle. I was drawn to Seattle because of its progressive politics and a good place to, at that point, being a single mom to raise, to raise my son. And have always been struck with kind of the, the irony or the, the juxtaposition between how how progressive kind of a hopeful city Seattle is, um, and also a very wealthy city now, 
um, with the fact that we have the at least the third highest rate of homelessness um, in our country and on a per capita basis, and especially with unhoused homelessness, probably have the the worst um, uh, situation for homelessness in our country. So I started to explore and question why that is, how we got to where we are now, and um, and doing research, ethnography, um, oral history interviews with people uh, working and living at the intersection of health and homelessness, and archive research to look into it. Great. So I I, I want to return us to to that that question you pose uh, here and in the beginning of the book itself about how it is that we account for the fact that New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, we could throw San Francisco into the mix. These supposedly liberal progressive cities wind up also having the highest rates of people who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, but before we do that, um, I want to dig into a little bit of that that much longer history of homelessness in Seattle that you recount in the book, uh, and perhaps maybe use that as a way for you to lead us into a discussion about what you think has changed and what has not. Um, so why don't we start with uh, Edward Moore? Tell us a little bit about Edward Moore and who he was and what we should know about him in his life. Yes. Yeah, so Edward Moore, I feel um, as if I got to know um, as much as, as possible, at least for someone who's, who's been uh, deceased for, um, for many, many years. Um, Edward Moore was um, found half frozen on a Seattle beach, um, the Belltown, what the area that's now Belltown uh, area of Seattle um, in late December of 1854. And we know that he was a 32-year-old sailor, originally from Worcester County, Massachusetts. And whether he was shipwrecked or left here by by a ship's captain, we don't we don't really know. But he was found half frozen on the beach during a, a very um, a cold winter by the townsfolk. It was uh, Seattle was only about two two years old at that time. And um, he had severe frostbite of his of his feet. We know that the town's main main um, physician, uh, Doc Maynard, amputated his uh, his toes with uh, with an axe, and then he was cared for after a fashion by Doc Maynard and his uh, second wife uh, Catherine, who served as a nurse, and by various townsfolk. And um, he was Seattle's. Uh, from what I could tell in terms of the research, Seattle's first official um, homeless uh, pauper and insane pauper. The Washington Territorial Poor Laws had just been passed um, that May and made it the the role of the counties to take care of any um, any paupers that fell ill within within their jurisdiction. If, um, if their families could not be found. And of course, um, Edward's family was um, all back in Massachusetts. Um, he was sent to Steelacum, which um, was the main fort. It's just uh, south of Seattle, taken care of by another physician who declared him insane. He was shackled there um, 
they tried to uh, between between King County physicians and then this other physician, um, Dr. Burns in Steelacum, tried to be reimbursed for the cost of his care from the uh, the Washington Territorial Legislature, and it was the bill was more than the entire territory um, uh, took took in for the year. So he was sent back to um, King County, and finally the townsfolk took up uh, kind of a contributions and bought uh, bought Edward more more uh, kind of a full set of clothes, and also paid for a ship's captain to sail him back to um, Boston, and then and then back to his hometown in in Worcester County. And that's as far as most of the historians, kind of the official historians for Seattle, um, including um, Morgan, uh, Murray Morgan um, said that that was the last thing that we knew about him. And I was able to, after, after several years of trying, was able to track down what happened to him because of a librarian, I love librarians, a librarian Worcester. <laughs> Um, Massachusetts, who found his death notice. And so uh, piecing together what happened to him, he was shipped back to, you know, through, through Boston, obviously, back to Worcester County, Massachusetts in 1856. Um, and then his death um, was May 12th, 1859 in Ashburnham, Massachusetts, where his, his sister and his um, father and mother were living. It was a, a, an old mill town. And the cause of death was suicide, but hanging caused insanity um, as the official death register. So uh, just thinking about what most likely happened to him and what his most likely diagnosis was, there was never any indication that he um, was an alcoholic. And just looking at what's available within the official records and letters um, you know, from different people in Seattle, that he most likely was suffering from schizophrenia, um, as well as probably what we now call PTSD. And, you know, he was sent back to his family to be taken care of and, um, and, and, and ended up um, uh, killing himself. So just piecing together what happened there, what the role of government um, was and is, um, the poor laws that, you know, obviously still exist in our different states and the legacy of that, of thinking about, you know, what some of the similarities are for how kind of the nascent town of of Seattle and the townsfolk getting together and not just the moral uh, duty, but also the actual legal duty to take care of someone who obviously could not be, could not take care of himself and, and then was obviously physically disabled after the amputations from the frostbite. And, and so just looking at that and realizing also as, as a nurse, as a nurse practitioner working with so many, you know, thousands of people over the years, we don't always know the outcomes for people that we work with or that we deal with, um, you know, in, in social services and health services. And, and trying to, you know, again, to piece together, well, what are, you know, what are the trajectories for, for people who we work with and what things could we do different, differently um, 
that would have a better outcome um, for people affected by all of the different things that can contribute to homelessness. Let me ask you if you would to share another of those very early stories that you recount in the book. Uh, who is Princess Angeline? Mm. Princess Angeline, yes. So um, Princess Angeline um, Kikasomlo um, is her is her Duwamish name. Um, was the daughter of Chief South uh, or Chief Seattle, um, who was the the chief of the Duwamish tribe um, at the time of the founding of the, you know, what what was the settlement then of of Seattle. And um, in her story, again, she was, she was made into this, um, this kind of, you know, for that time, a media celebrity. She, you know, lived a long life, at least into her eighties. And, um, and also was homeless and um, and a victim of domestic violence, um, and so piecing together her story of what's not necessarily in the official, again, um, and mostly told by white people story of of uh, Princess Angeline, and so looking at that, getting into again the very early roots of gender based violence and. And also um, uh, sexual abuse and prostitution um, for Seattle, which is still with us today, um, including um, for for young teens. And and so looking at that, the roots of how we treat other people, the you know the othering, how we, um, especially indigenous um, populations, the Duwamish tribe, um, still does not have um, official. Uh, federal recognition. They're they're trying for that, and and Seattle is built on their um, traditional ancestral lands. And Princess Angeline ended up living in and then dying in a one room uh, kind of uh, rough hewn shack, um, which was located again in the Belltown area, uh, right downhill of what is now um, Pike Place Market. Um, in Seattle, and uh, she died of tuberculosis um, in in the one room shack. And looking at that, even in terms of our modern day um, tiny tiny house villages, which um, Seattle has quite a lot of, and is um, currently, you know, under our, our current mayor, it has been um, increased uh, pretty dramatically, uh, especially during the pandemic. And so looking, looking at that, the roots, roots of that, the roots of prostitution and how that is a vast majority um, for uh, young girls, not exclusively uh, girls and women, but um, fairly, uh, fairly high number that are obviously gendered um, female and how many of them are from impoverished backgrounds, backgrounds that have included um, really severe um, sexual abuse that has not been um, adequately addressed, and also um, uh, young girls and women of color, and and looking at that uh, for what's currently going on in Seattle. 
So why don't we're gonna let let's let's jump over a century's worth of of interesting stories and rich history that you recount in the the, in the book, and why don't we come a little bit more up to the contemporary period? Um, we should talk a little bit about. Uh, what what often we think of as sort of the period of modern homelessness, right? Beginning in the 1970s, 1980s. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's going on in Seattle in that period? And then we will, after that, jump forward and talk about the president at present, and then maybe <laughs> conclude about about uh, what what you think we can do about. So so what's going on in the 70s and 80s in that period in Seattle? Yeah, we can talk about the, the president too. If you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, and this is, you know, the, the modern period or, um, you know, kind of the, the, um, the, the big wave of contemporary homelessness um, is within my lifespan as, and also within the time period that I have worked. Um with with homelessness, so so that was interesting for me because I, I mostly had experienced it and knew about it in in Boston and and along the Eastern Seaboard where I lived and worked, um, but to look at what was happening with that in in Seattle, um, and again Seattle because because of its uh, being a port a port town being close to. Um, a border, a major border with um, Canada, and and it's um, it's kind of its history. Um, we have had a really um, big problem all along, again with with prostitution and with um, especially uh, among street involved young people, and so that um, I chose to focus that chapter on. Um, especially the 70s and 80s um, and then into the early 90s with um, street-involved young people who were at that point hanging out um, down near Pike Place Market um, and and very much involved in prostitution. And then it obviously overlapped with with the Green, um, Green River uh, Killer and what was going on with that. He mostly preyed on um, the, young, the young teens who were living on the streets and who were, um, who were, uh, um, involved with the, the sex trade and, um, and he would pick them up and, and then murder them. So I was looking at that, um, what was going on with, um, the kind of chronic, uh, alcoholics, uh, what we had considered to be the, you know, the, the, the main, um, uh, denizens of Skid Road and how that was then changing to include much younger, um, again, uh, teens, young adults, and then also homeless families. I mean, that's the, the big thing that happened nationally at the time. And that, and that was also happening here in Seattle is that entire families were ending up, um, homeless and struggling with finding places to stay. And in Seattle, again, uh, similar to what was happening nationally, the SROs, the single room occupancy hotels, which had been kind of a place of last resort um, for people kind of falling, spiraling into poverty and homelessness um, or near homelessness. And those were being closed because of fire issues and, um, and the city was beginning to, you know, to be gentrified. So looking at the housing issues that were going on, for people as well as like failures in our 
in our uh, child child care system, foster care system, and 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 then um, the arrival of different kinds of of, um, of substances on the streets as well, and what was and how that was impacting people. So let's let's work our way up to to the present. Um, what should people know about? Uh, how many people are experiencing homelessness in Seattle today and what that life is like for them, recognizing obviously that it's, it's different for different people in different circumstances and, and what is and is not being done uh, in order to help them. Okay. So um, Seattle participates in the point in time count um, as do other uh, major municipalities. Muni- muni- I'll get that. Municipalities. <laughs> it's just hard across, to say as president, yeah, yeah, isn't there it? Yeah. Go. <laughs> there are other cities across the nation um, who get um, federal federal funding support um, for, for housing and, and homelessness issues. Um, we were not able to do the full point and count time during the pandemic. So um, uh, that the numbers, the current numbers are actually not known. Um, the, the last actual point in time count that we, that we were able to do right before the pandemic hit in January of, uh, 2020. And, and I participated as a, as kind of like one of the leaders in the university district area, um, near where I work and live. And that was hovering, um, right around, right over, uh, 12,000, um, people who were homeless, in King County and around 4,000 um, in Seattle. And that has been pretty consistent um, between the years of 2017 and 2020. There was a slight dip in 2019, um, but also kind of a change in the methodology that makes the comparison a little bit differently, a little bit different. And looking at the, the kind of the subgroups of people experiencing homelessness, the only two groups um, in um, in 2020 that were um, showing kind of a consistent dip um, uh, reduction in homelessness were homeless youth, unaccompanied um, minors, and also veterans. And we know that um, obviously there's been a um, a concerted effort uh, across the country in terms of addressing adequately addressing homelessness for for veterans and that uh, has been the case also here in Seattle so that probably contributes to that dip and then also some changes in um, kind of foster care kinds of things some really good programs for um, addressing homelessness among our, our teens and young adults across the state as well as in Seattle that um, hopefully contributed to the dip in, in youth homelessness. Unfortunately, especially for homeless families, a fairly significant increase um, uh, despite kind of a regional approach that Gates Foundation funding to address family homelessness. Um, but what they found, and that, that was changing from a housing readiness model, which we've had for a long time, kind of tra- you know transitional housing, to, um, to getting families as quickly as possibly, possible, you know, rapidly rehoused. And that's been really effective. But what they found, not surprisingly, is that if you don't also address the 
the incoming um, you know, what newly homeless families, then um, it, it, it doesn't help. You have to have uh, both, both of those efforts going on. And so that's something that's going on definitely during the pandemic. Um, and again, we don't have uh, good numbers on this, but um, uh, the unhoused, the unsheltered homeless population has increased dramatically. And that's no surprise. A lot of the congregate uh, shelters, just like throughout the country, um, had to close or at least you know, greatly reduce capacity um, for the pandemic. And of course, Seattle was, the Seattle area was the first in our country to, to recognize that there was community spread of, of COVID. And so um, the number of people, the number of encampments um, everywhere, including like right next to my house, um, has increased as well as uh, vehicle residents, um, people living in cars and trucks and in our city parks um, uh, and side streets and everywhere else. So that definitely everybody is recognizing um, that that has that that population of unsheltered has um, has dramatically increased. The city, um, and the county have finally begun to work together on a, a hopefully a concerted regional response to homelessness. We now have a you know, King County Authority on Homelessness um, and the executive director for that um, was just hired and has is, and is just started. I do find it um, hopeful they um, um, are... Uh, uh, person of color and also someone who has experienced um, homelessness in their, in their past. So I find that to be a hopeful, two hopeful kinds of uh, steps in the right direction. And uh, Seattle itself has really tried to, again, start uh, because of the pandemic uh, being spurred on to um, to buy up uh, hotels and motels, um, to work with uh, Harborview Medical Center, it's like our, our main um, King County Safety Net Hospital, as well as Public Health Seattle King County, Healthcare for the Homeless Program, to have nurses and other medical um, people on site for kind of a quarantine and recovery um, center for people who don't have adequate housing to quarantine and recover um, from COVID. And of looking and expanding that, because um, it's really helped people, not surprisingly, again, to become more stable and to then, um, you know, get right into um, more, hopefully more long-term uh, housing. And so that's been expanding. And, and also, as I, as I mentioned, the kind of the tiny house villages um, and of increasing those, which again is um, controversial because uh, most tiny house uh, villages, at least in, in Seattle, um, don't have their own bathrooms. You know, it's like a um, uh, kind of a congregate uh, bathroom kind of area and shared kitchen tent area. So uh, it's better than being probably in an encampment or in a vehicle somewhere for some people. But um, it's not, from my, at least from my perspective, it's not it's not real housing. Um, it's not a long-term um, solution to homelessness. 
So let's let's say that that I am an unhoused single man in Seattle today with an undiagnosed and untreated mental illness. Um, am I better off than Edward Moore was? <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. I, I talk about that in in my book, um, and that um, I mean that. And again, and I, you know, I go through the history of, um, especially for Washington State, Washington uh, Territory, and then state of um, our history in terms of treatment um, for people with mental illness. We have currently one of the country's highest rates of uh, pretty severe mental illness, and we have one of the worst um, mental health systems. And there again, has been recognition of that and a lot of effort being put into um, addressing, addressing it. So that's for housed people as well as, as, as people experiencing homelessness. Um, I think that an Edward Moore today, I mean, one of the things that, that I talk about, you know, that's been developed in Seattle, we have you know, we were some of the pioneers of the Medic One system, um, working through, again, Harborview Medical Center with um, with our, our fire um, fighters, and and having um, medics who uh, respond, you know, to emergencies and really um, help people get to the right place and to survive in the field. So they would probably have been involved with uh, a modern day. And I know they are involved with modern day um, Edward Moores and, and again, mostly relying on Harborview Medical Center um, as kind of the, the hospital of last resort um, to help people uh, get um, the help that they need. And Harborview has gotten an infusion of uh, funding um, from the state to increase their capacity in terms of mental health uh, treatment, um, both kind of emergency triage and then inpatient um, care and aftercare. Um, you know, currently, Harborview Medical Center, uh, I think they're licensed for something like 419 beds, inpatient beds, and they're uh, over 500 um, as of today. Um, a lot of that because of, because of the, again, the, the fifth wave or whatever we're on now with, with COVID, um, but also a lack of um, places and staffing at more long-term facilities to be able to have people um, be discharged to who are, who are ready to be discharged. So that um, yeah, obviously it's been complicated dramatically because of because of the pandemic. Um, but I do see hopeful signs of um, more kind of coordinated care to help people um, who are, are dealing with um, mental illness. And, and we do recognize, obviously, um, I think we all intuitive, intuitively know this, that having safe, um, stable housing is itself uh, a very potent um, form of mental health treatment. Um, even people who aren't getting therapy, aren't getting you know, whatever appropriate medications, psychotropic medications they might need, um, having a safe and stable, affordable place to stay dramatically increases um, people's mental um, mental health. Um, 
as long as there's obviously also kind of a community um, so that they're not suffering loneliness within that. Um, so I think that there are lots of people um, and, and programs and agencies throughout Seattle that are really working to address this, not only for the single um, male like, um, like Edward Moore um, suffering from mental illness, um, but also families and, um, and teens and young adults and, and the elderly as well, because we know that we have a significant aging um, population of people who have chronically been homeless. So, Josephine, why don't we conclude by going back to, to, to where we began in the question that, that you raised first. Um, all that having been said, why is it that when we look at Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, that we seem to have the largest number of people experiencing homelessness in these places that are supposedly liberal or progressive? Yes, that is interesting. Um, I get some not so nice questions with the same kind of the same kind of thing from <laughs> from people from trolls on social media. So thanks for asking it more nicely. <laughs> you know, it's all people. Well, it's a bit of a puzzle, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. And um, I think um, personally that um, that many people are attracted to um, two places like Seattle that, um, that are more progressive. Um, these are also, you know, obviously areas um, with jobs, with um, higher standards of living, um, also high cost of living. And people are attracted here, whether or not they were homeless to begin with in whatever place, like an outlying area of, of Washington state. We know that the vast majority of people who are homeless in Seattle and King County are from the region, from the state, um, you know, before they became homeless. But, you know, I've had many patients who have moved here um, with the promise of a job at Microsoft or, you know, one of the different startups. And, and then that job dried up when they got here and they had used all of their savings and, you know, the grace of their families to move here and they, and they spiral into, into homelessness. So that definitely happens. Um, the, the cost of housing in all of these areas and especially Seattle, I think Seattle, uh, especially during the pandemic has led the country in terms of just the massive rise of, of the cost of housing. Um, it's getting out of reach even for you know, supposedly middle-class um, families. And then, you know, the eviction moratorium and then all of the, the kinds of things in terms of that um, beginning to expire, um, that, you know, we, we do know that more people are falling into homelessness, like for the first time in their lives. Um, and, and many more people are at risk of that if we don't... Um, do do something to to address that. Um, so I think it's because um, you know we're vibrant. We happen to be progressive, but also vibrant communities. Um, uh, Seattle does have like some of the highest opportunity areas for you know again for for children uh, born into poverty being able to move out of poverty by the time. Um, there are young adults. Super high upward mobility rates. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, which is um, amazing. And those are, and again, those are not, um, uh, you know, this is uh, Chetty and, and the researchers mostly mm -hmm. from Harvard. 
Um, and it's not, uh, it's not necessarily um, rich zip codes. You know, there, there are um, zip codes that, you know, just a, a real kind of range of, of income levels, but they manage somehow to, to do it right in terms of, you know, the quality of their public schools, um, the community kind of cohesion. That's a super important thing, especially for children, but also for all of us. And, um, and I think people, even if they don't know the research behind that, I think word of mouth, you know, that that, <laughs> that, that attracts mm-hmm. people. Um, and then, and then people, uh, can experience, um, again, different kinds of, of crises, um, trauma that precedes them going into homelessness and then the, the trauma that accompanies homelessness, which, you know, just makes it that much more difficult to successfully exit homelessness. So that's why I think, um, a lot of the places like, again, San Francisco, um, and Seattle have really high rates of, homelessness, um, especially unsheltered homelessness, because of course, New York City and New York has a, a mandate for um, a right to shelter. Plus, it's usually colder, um, not as easy to, to survive outside. You're listening to the New Books Network, and we have been speaking today with Josephine Ensign, who has been talking about her new book, Skid Road, On the Frontier of Health and Homelessness in an American City, uh, new out from Johns Hopkins University Press. Josephine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and share a little bit of, of the work that you did in your book. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for the opportunity. 